My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, our season two premiere. I'm so excited. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jessica Dory. And we are back. We had planned uh, a short break after season one, and then a pandemic hit. And I feel like (laughs) we've been on one long Zoom call for about six months with children screaming in the background, and outside the window is just literal fire. Yeah, it's been pretty Armageddon-ish, but we did make it back. It was on our minds. We wanted to make this happen, and I can't believe we're here. It kind of snuck up on me. Yeah, but we're healthy. We're pretty lucky. And Very lucky. Yeah, we're back with some new lesser-known stories about the early American presidents and founders. I'm so excited, and you've been, like always, keeping this a secret from me. I am not privy to the stories ahead of time, so here I am with the anticipation boiling. All right, on that note... What holiday is just around the corner? Uh, my favorite, Halloween. Halloween. Yes. I can't wait, although it's going to be quite different this year, so I don't know. We're going to have to reinvent it a little. That's all I have to say. Yes. But I plan to go all out. Oh, me too. Yeah, well, I would hope so since you're living in our household. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a choice. You can, yeah. I it's cr- it's I, our way or the highway, man. I couldn't sit this out if I wanted to. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So when I went digging into some creepy presidential stories, yes, I actually I found too many weird little paranormal stories to contain in just one episode. Really? So allow me to welcome you to part one of our very first two-parter. Really? Yes. Oh my God. And it's a spooky one? It's a spooky oh, one. Oh, this is so up. Well, our alley. We love morbid, macabre themes. And there's something about it that I mean, brought us together also. So I remember we went to a double feature at the Beverly. The New Beverly. The New Bev, yeah. And we, I just, I think I realized I was in love with you in that movie. <laughs> that was that was the night that you asked me out online afterward. Yeah, we went our separate ways and then I got back online. There you were, of course, waiting for me to get back online. And I asked you out. And the rest is history. Yeah, and you left me hanging for like a minute, but... I had to think about how to respond. I had to be cool. (laughs) Anyway, move on. So today, instead of digging into one story, we're going to look at three haunted stories related to the early presidents. Oh, my gosh. One unexplainable paranormal experience. Oh, that's exciting. One medieval method of determining a murderer's guilt. Dunking? Oh, just wait. And one legendary monster who frightened the founders as children. Are you ready? Mm, I I'm so ex- I can't even contain my excitement. I've already prepped for this. I had some Reese's. I had some wine. I had a little wine too. <laughs> so I, I'm just super excited. Our first story is about our favorite founding couple. Oh, the Adams. Yes, John the and Abigail Adams. Yes. We begin with the apparition of John Adams. I can't believe they have a haunted story. This is so exciting. I didn't know this. It's a little bizarre. So just so you know, Howard's been doing a lot of reading 
in the bathroom <laughs> and a lot of reading in the bathtub to prepare his research for this. Is and there so any I, other way? Uh, <laughs> and so I've been, I, I keep asking, say, what are you reading? And he says, I can't tell you because it's part of season two. So I just can't wait. Okay, John Adams, go. All right, so there are a lot of stories of ghosts and presidents haunting the White House, and we might get to those next time. But this story is actually about a ghost of a president that made an appearance while he was still alive. How is that possible? Well, while John and Abigail Adams were dating, even before they were engaged. Did she have to ask him out, too? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't think so, no. I, oh, I, I, I think they just wrote letters until they were married. I think that's, yeah. It's kind of what we did. <laughs> you're, you're pen pals long enough and then you're officially married. Right. She wrote him a letter that shared a really strange paranormal experience. She wrote this letter. She wrote this letter okay. to him mm-hmm. on September the 12th in 1763. She wrote to him, have you heard the news? That two apparitions were seen one evening this week hovering about this house which very much resembled you and a cousin of yours. How it should ever enter into the head of an apparition to assume a form like yours, I cannot devise. (laughs) When I was told of it, I could scarcely believe it, yet I could not declare the contrary, for I did not see it, and therefore had not that demonstration which generally convinces me that you are not a ghost. Wow. That would be disturbing. I mean, think about the time lapse between when letters are written, especially when he was away. They didn't get word how they were doing for days and days and days. And so if my family saw ghosts that looked like my husband around the house, I'd be freaking out thinking he was dead. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It would terrify me. Exactly. And here she is just writing like, oh, this is strange. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was kind of her way of saying, hey, you alive? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Like, how you doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you hanging um, in there? Where, when was this in relationship to the smallpox this situation? This was one year before he got inoculated, one year before they became engaged. Wow. Okay, yeah. so they're dating. Right. They're, they're okay. dating. It's early on. It's, it's okay. cute. It's like, ha, 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 saw your ghost. First, I want to talk about the cousin of his. Okay. His name was Zabdiel Adams. Zabdiel. Zabdiel. So uh, he's probably a demon. I mean, that sounds a little bit demon-esque. I've never heard the name before. Apparently it's from the Bible. Zabdiel. Yeah. He was a preacher, like Abigail's father. Of course. And he was actually John Adams's double first cousin. How does that work exactly? I looked it up and it's not as gross as it sounds. Okay. It's when... Not ancestral? No. Okay. It's when two siblings marry two other siblings. Whoa. Okay. All right. So, okay. Imagine um, if your sister mm-hmm. married one of my brothers. Okay. Already I'm a little horrified. Okay. All right, you know what? All right. You don't have to imagine them married. Okay. Imagine if your sister bred with one of my brothers. Jesus. <laughs> Their children would be our children's double cousins. That's disturbing on so many levels, but okay. That's, I mean, that makes sense. You're going to marry and, and breed with um, people you know, so. Yeah, small world. <laughs> and they share twice as much DNA with each other as regular cousins. So. Does that affect their development? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not like bad incest? in any way. Okay. It can confuse genealogists maybe because genetically they're as similar to each other as uh, half siblings. So, exactly. Yeah, okay. just a fun little fact. Fun. Uh, I'd like to say that being double cousins makes you more likely to appear as an apparition. Um, You can't find out evidence for that. (laughs) I cannot back that up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Zabdiel, by the way, 
Um, Zabdiel. Zabdiel. Uh, the name means gift from God. Oh. Which I swear. Zab. I think that's the meaning of every name I've ever looked up. It means gift from God. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of you know, synonyms. Sure. Those synonyms exist. <laughs> I don't believe in synonyms. <laughs> Anti-synonymite. No. Okay. So, no more wine for you. No more wine ever. <laughs> that's a horrible thing to say. What I love most about this letter is how nonchalant Abigail is about the fact that like apparitions or ghosts were seen just hovering. She's not questioning whether or not it was something spiritual or paranormal. She's just saying, hey, did you hear this thing happened? Was this happening a lot? Why was she so nonchalant? I didn't see any other references to like ghosts or apparitions in any of their letters. And this, by the way, is the third paragraph of the letter. She didn't even lead with this. Wow. So she's pretty chill about it, it seems. I have so many questions. It's like, I, I, I really want to know how the conversation went when she was told. Uh-huh. Like, I imagine somebody saying like, hey, Abigail, <laughs> you just missed it. There were two ghosts just hovering around. Uh, they look like your boyfriend and his his double cousin. Oh my God. On both sides, double, you, you get it, Abigail. Um, so you might want to check on John and, and Zab, and just they might be dead. Um, Zab, you mean? Yeah, Zab, Zab deal. Zab deal. They probably called him Zab. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's just a coincidence, Abigail, but we live in puritanical New England, and it's the mid-18th century, and ghosts <laughs> are real and super weird, and yeah, have a nice day. Oh, Wow. Well, she probably wanted to seem super chill with writing to John about it. And, I mean, she, she always enjoyed teasing him. And I love that she takes the opportunity to, to tease him by saying, like, why would a ghost want to look like you? <laughs> of all the shapes a ghost could take on. <laughs> They're always doing that to each other. In another letter, I mean, she was a tough cookie. Yeah, she so was. So in 1776, she wrote to him about how strong she was when he was away. and Which uh, she was. She would sometimes hear that he had died. And I can't imagine living in this time. I just can't imagine. I know. And she wrote to him and she said, I am not apt to be intimidated, you know. I have given as little heed to that and a thousand other bugbear reports as possible. So she doesn't believe the news when she hears it? No, a bugbear is like like a boogeyman, something to scare kids that wasn't actually real. She she didn't believe it. Uh, And she went on to say, I have slept as soundly since my return, notwithstanding all the ghosts and hobgoblins as ever I did in my life. So I don't know if she's extending the bugbear metaphor. I really want to believe that she's acknowledging that like ghosts and hobgoblins are are real things that were plaguing her nightly and she was just over it. I have a very, very important question for you. Yes. Did Halloween exist back then? Did they have Halloween? To the best of my knowledge, it was not something they celebrated. And I think I've looked for references to it. And there's nothing like a holiday of Halloween. I don't Mm. think it was any kind of tradition back then. Oh, wow. That's so sad. I know. Yeah. It was just life without Halloween. Well, I think it was part of their life every day. They had hobgoblins and stuff crawling around. So why? (laughs) They have ghosts of their husbands just (laughs) ghosts of their husbands just hobnobbing around their homes. We don't get to see John's response to hearing that he had a ghost doppelganger. We don't? No. um, Probably because they saw each other in person and talked about it. But there's actually a big gap in their letters after this letter. There are no letters for seven months. So they may it, have been hiding something or it's totally possible. They spent that whole winter fighting off a shape shifting demon and then they just decided <laughs> never to speak of it again. Yeah, They were like, this is going to stay brushed under the rug. <laughs> 
or maybe he wrote to her and he's like, Abigail, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know what your family has been drinking. Uh, please don't ever write to me again about seeing my apparition. I told you. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. You told... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Did you want to start that again? I thought I saw something. <laughs> You're freaking me out. Were you trying to startle me? I was trying to startle you, but then you didn't startle at all. So then I just felt like I'm I was I'm a professional. <laughs> then I Why just... would you try to startle me while we're doing this I, podcast? I don't know. I've had far too much wine. And so I was really trying to startle you. But then you just kept going. And then I felt really bad like I was interrupting. And I'm, I apologize. Can, like, you can start it over. Cut this out. Whatever you need to do. I, I accept your apology. <laughs> it's um, rare that I apologize, <laughs> so you better, yeah, soak in this bliss. Um, I think that sometimes when you do this, you you get the idea. I'm gonna try to scare him. Yeah, and you know how like, uh, um, oh, who's okay? America's Next Top Model, Tara. What's her name? Tyra. Tyra Banks. Tyra Banks talks I can't about. Can't believe I remember her name. She talks about smile with your eyes. Yeah, and that's what you do when you try to scare me. The what? rest of your face might be like, "Ooh, spooky," but your eyes are like, oh, "I'm having so much fun right now." Wow, you just told me my poker tell. Thank you. I'll use this data and information for future scares. You're not going to remember this. <laughs> um. So either way, that's all we know of the apparition of John Adams. Wow. Did I mean we don't have any other letters from the people working there or anyone who saw? We're they don't... we're lucky that Abigail and John kept their letters at all. I mean, there's no other word about it. No, this was just one random reference in a letter from Abigail to John, and it was never spoken of again. Oh, that's spooky. I like it. All right. Next, we're going to move on to another story. This one is also... Wait, 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 wait. What? I just, I have another important question for you. All right. So if you were going to be visited by an apparition of one of the presidents, which one would you like to visit you? Um, Definitely not Andrew Jackson. Well, for sure not, because he was a demon. Talk about <laughs> demon. Like... Um, which ghost would I want? Uh, one of the mild-mannered ones. <laughs> Even I mean, like John Adams sounds kind of fun, but I think he might be kind of loud and, and <laughs> too loud for the night. He'd make a lot of racket, possibly. Okay. Um, put down those chains, John. Yeah, or just stop banging your cane and telling me how you feel about things. <laughs> wow, a ghost. I don't know. I think maybe if we're talking early presidents, James Madison might make a quiet little ghost. Oh, so and that's really what I'm into. Your goal is to have someone not too intimidating. You don't want to be scared. You just want to be visited. Yeah. Like, I can't get beyond. I can't think, Ooh, I would love to speak to the ghost and talk about their lives. To me, it would never get to that point. I would see the ghost. I would shit my pants. <laughs> and that would be the end of it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I'm going for the least intimidating. Least specter. shit amount on your pants. Yeah. Okay. So then you can have a conversation. I don't, I don't know. I still don't know that I could have a conversation. So tell me why James Madison is your ticket. I think he would be the least intimidating of all the spirits. Because of his size? Yeah. And I, he wasn't very confrontational. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, he was described as like a withered old man when he was alive. So I imagine as a ghost, he's probably, if I could take any ghost, I could, could probably take, take his ghost. <laughs> Got it. Okay. You could take him down. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So you're you're judging by who you could win in a fight. <laughs> uh, in, a, in a ghost fight. In a ghost fight. Okay. Yes. Good. I won't I won't send anyone else. 
One Day University is an amazing company that just recently went online, making incredible professors available to anyone with a computer or a smartphone. These professors are chosen based on the ratings of students throughout the country, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, and more. One Day U has so many great talks about American history. Didn't you attend one? Yes, I first heard of them because your dad actually invited me to go to a lecture here in LA all about Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, and it was such a cool experience. That lecture by Professor Louis Mazur is part of their video library now, and you can watch it from your couch or your bathtub. <laughs> They've got tons of great lectures about the American Revolution, the Civil War. There's one on Thomas Edison versus Nikola Tesla. There's one on the founding mothers about women and the struggle for American independence. And there's no homework assignments. One Day University is just about learning for the sake of learning, and every talk is just one hour. One Day University is an incredibly affordable way to bring top-notch lectures to you. Memberships are just $7.95 a month, but for our listeners, you can try it out for one month completely free. You get access to their entire video library and more. Just visit onedayu.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y, the letter U, and enter the promo code PLOTTING. What an accessible and practical way to feed your brain. Did you ever wish that you could go back to college just to learn for learning's sake? Absolutely, yes. Maybe one day you will. Is, <laughs> is that a pun? Are you punning? I'm sorry. This was going so well. Our next story is also about John Adams, but it has to do with his legal career hmm. and a murder trial involving a gruesome medieval practice. Was it dunking? It was not dunking. Was it fire? No. Gruesome medieval practice. Leeching. No, no. This brings us to the ordeal of touch. Oh, I'm really curious what the ordeal of touch is. So I had a hard time finding any primary sources about this case. Most of this comes from an 1869 article in the Essex Antiquarian. In 1768, this is just a few years after our last story, 21-year-old Ruth Purley married Jonathan Ames, and she moved in with him and his mother, Elizabeth. Now, Ruth's mother-in-law never really liked Ruth. Um, Elizabeth didn't. Elizabeth did not like Ruth. Maybe because she was four months pregnant when she and her son got married. Ooh, scandalous. Yeah. Elizabeth always referred to Ruth as her son's housekeeper. Oh. Yeah. Boo. Right? Then Ruth had a baby. She gave birth in May 1769. And a few days later, a nosy neighbor, Mrs. Kimball, went to check on Ruth. But not Mrs. Kimball. Well, Mrs. Kimball... You want her on your side. Okay. Um, we love Mrs. Kimball. She's the best. She went to check on Ruth, but Elizabeth said that Ruth was too sick to see. She said, no, her room stinks of vomit. You better just stay away. But Mrs. Kimball insisted, went into Ruth's room, and saw that the room was clean. There was no vomit smell. But Ruth was lying in bed in agony and frothing at the mouth. Holy shitballs. She died just a few hours later. Oh, my God. None of the neighbors were invited to the funeral, and she was buried fast, like suspiciously fast. So there was definitely some foul play involved. Maybe Elizabeth, you know, dabbled in poison. She did not stay buried for long. What? So people like Mrs. Kimball, they suspected Elizabeth or Jonathan of murdering Ruth. Hmm. But there was hmm. no evidence. So a bunch of townsfolk got together they signed a petition and they convinced some coroners to exhume her body and do an autopsy. Oh my goodness. 
And this is 1769. Yeah, what so, does I mean? What does that even look like in 1769? Do they? <laughs> 1769. What's the? How you doing? Autopsy back in the day. Are you telling me I'm slurring my words? <laughs> no, no, it's a hard it's year to say. 1769. How do you 17. do an autopsy and exhumation in 1769? <laughs> Um, it's, I don't know. Uh, once I tell you, you'll feel exhumated. You love me because I do weird things to words, don't you? Uh, not just words. All right. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, they determined that Ruth had been poisoned by arsenic. But they couldn't say for sure who did it. No, they couldn't. So they turned to an arcane sort of ritual called the ordeal of the touch or beer rite. And beer, beer B-I-E-R, oh. is actually the name of like a wagon or a cart that you move a coffin on or a okay. corpse. Okay, okay. So they, pleasant. they laid Ruth's nude body on a table in the courthouse with just a white sheet over her, and they summoned both Jonathan and his mother Elizabeth to the courthouse. They were going to have each of them touch the neck of Ruth's corpse with the index finger of their left hand. The idea was that a murder victim's body would begin to bleed if it was touched by their killer and the blood would soak through that white sheet. Oh, wow. That's that's a big assumption, first of all. What do you mean? <laughs> I just, I don't know if that's the right way to go as far as... Um... Maybe you never watched CSI. <laughs> I, we, I have, and that hasn't been one of the go-to methods. Well, beer right or cruentation, it's got a lot of names. It goes synonyms. Up, so many synonyms. It goes. You love them. I do, but when you're researching, it's kind of annoying because you have to look up something like five times to find what, what you're looking it means. for. Okay. It goes back to medieval times, the the sixth century at least, and some say wow. it. Some say it even has its roots in the Bible, in the very first murder. So right after God asked Cain, "Hey, where's your brother at?" and Cain says, "I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?" God, <laughs> God says, "What hast thou done?" The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Wow. So the idea that the blood of the slain can speak goes way back. This whole ritual is pretty popular in Europe. King James I, who, you know, had his own version of the Bible, he was a big believer in it. In a book that he wrote about demonology, he wrote, In a secret murder, if the dead carcass be at any time thereafter handled by the murderer, it will gush out of blood, as if the blood were crying out to the heaven for revenge of the murderer. I don't know why this reminds me of Game of Thrones, where like he comes back alive from the table, or they touch him or do something to him. It does have that sense to it. Yeah, I don't yeah, remember the like scene you're talking like about, but it's been in some... You don't remember the scene where Jon Snow comes back to oh, life? Oh, Jon Snow. Okay, you got to be specific. You said he. There's only one person who comes back to life. Uh, I don't know that that's necessary. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> I think it's pretty true. Okay. Although I zoned out for like all of season four. I think so. you know nothing but Jon Snow. <laughs> you know nothing. Howard Dory. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this was thought to be a verdict rendered by God. I'll give you one case. In 1503, okay. in Switzerland. That's really early. Oh, yeah. A man named Hans Spice was accused of murdering his wife. She was buried, but then she was exhumed three weeks later, and he was brought before her body. Now, he had sworn that he was innocent, but as he approached the body, it suddenly flushed with color and started to bleed. And when that happened, he got down on his knees and confessed and begged for mercy. 
Then he was sentenced to the wheel and broken. Oh, okay. Wait, 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 wait. There's a few things. Yes. The wheel. The wheel. So is this like? I feel like we visited a torture exhibit once in San Diego. Yeah. So they're strapped to a wheel. So they are strapped to a wagon wheel, basically. Oh. And now the the wheel. I don't think the wheel really moves. Oh no! Why no. wouldn't a wheel move? That's I don't, what it does. I don't understand. It's almost like the wheel is just there to hold them while their limbs are stretched out. But what happens is all of their limbs and all of their bones are just bludgeoned and broken and they're left on the wheel. So so not great. No, no, it's not great. It's getting dark. So there are different theories behind this beer rite as to like why a corpse would bleed or what it means. So one idea was that, oh, it's a miracle. It's, It's God making the corpse bleed to prove the killer's guilt. But then people were like, well, what if it's not God? What if it's what if it's a demon playing some kind of trick? So maybe we need a little bit of other evidence, too. Oh, yeah. So not just... It's smart. Another theory is that there was so much hatred in the victim's body left for the person that killed them that that hate would manifest itself in blood. But eventually, doctors kind of realized that, you know... (laughs) That's bullshit. (laughs) And also that there's something called purge fluid that can build up in your lungs. And if you push on an old corpse, stuff might come out. Oh, that's delicious. Yeah. Um, Gross. Purge fluid now at Costco. Oh, gosh. I'll save all my purge fluid for you. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like Halloween early. So the best reason behind why this, not to say that it worked, but it it sounds like some kind of sketchy police tactic, is that apparently some killers were so scared of what might happen when they touched their victim's corpse that they confessed just before they were made to do it. That's incredible. Kind of like a lie detector test. Yeah. And neither of which do I really believe should be admissible. (laughs) Right. This is just a traumatic experience all around. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's not good. I don't like it. I'm not (laughs) for it. You're not for this method. No. What? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying take it off the table, <laughs> you know, um, but only in extreme cases. So, all right, back to Ruth's body okay. underneath that sheet. Has she purged her fluid yet? That's a little personal. <laughs> Jonathan and his mother were brought in, but they both refused to touch the body. Wow. And they were arrested. So maybe they both killed her. Elizabeth was arrested as the main defendant and Jonathan as an accessory. Hmm. How did they come to that? I I don't. I, maybe because Elizabeth was constantly calling her my son's housekeeper <laughs> and like was chewing Mrs. Kimball away. Oh my god! And uh, everybody so knew Elizabeth loved baby. poison. I don't know. <laughs> this is after the baby came. Yes. Correct? Okay. How old's the baby at this point? Days old. I think. Oh, so really new. Yes. Okay. They just wanted the baby out before they killed her, basically. <laughs> you know, I'm not a lawyer. Or a detective, (laughs) clearly. Or a Perry Mason. He he does it all. So they, speaking of lawyers, they needed a good one. Yeah. Enter 34-year-old country lawyer, John Adams. Country lawyer. Everybody's dream. (laughs) So like other lawyers, he, he traveled around from town to town looking for work. And he ended up in the town of Salem, Massachusetts. Elizabeth and Jonathan, Salem. yeah, they were being kept in the same jail cell or the same jail where the accused witches from the Salem witch trials had been held 75 years earlier. Wow, in that's fact, really ominous. Yeah, Jonathan's own great grandmother, Rebecca, had been one of the accused witches and she was one of only seven, I think, to be released. Oh my gosh. 
So Adams, he had a keen legal mind. He was very critical of anything superstitious. And to him, the ordeal of touch was as ridiculously old-fashioned as the witch trials that his state was kind of trying to put behind them. Mm-hmm. He took the case. Mm. While in jail, apparently, <laughs> Elizabeth talked in her sleep and said things like, Don't tell on me, Jonathan. If you do, I shall be hanged. Yeah. Oh, she's not guilty. I mean, this shouldn't be admissible. And this is true. I do have some weird dreams. Yeah. But then she told the magistrates that she wanted to turn King's evidence on her son, which means like when you're accused of something and you you, like roll over on somebody else and she's saying, oh, yeah, he poisoned her. But then he heard about that and he's like, no, I'm going to turn King's evidence on her. And so he told them and this this story does not endear me to him anymore as a good, (laughs) dutiful husband. He said the week before Ruth died, his mother said to him, she was going to deprive him of his housekeeper by poisoning her with rat bane, a rat poison like arsenic. Wow. So, no, it's not her. Not at all. But, uh, like, if he knew this and he held on to it, like, questions. And yeah, then... he probably was like, all right. <laughs> until the night before she died, he says, oh, yeah, you know, I saw my mom give her a piece of bread and butter with what looked like rat bane on it. And I told Ruth, hey, you shouldn't eat that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What an asshole. Well, I don't know if I believe him, for one. Why would he say that? Because it incriminates him. It incriminates him for negligence, but it incriminates his mother for actual murder. Maybe he was trying to get away from the murderer label, but still, it makes him a terrible person. Like, that might be poison, but I'll I'll just wait and see. Agreed. There are no heroes in the story left alive. He clearly didn't care if she died. If you were eating poison, I'd be like, stop. Yeah, yeah. If I saw your in mom in slow motion, if I saw your mom or somebody like giving you poison, I would probably stop me from eating it. Yes, you would. Yeah, I would certainly say something. <laughs> so thank you, babe. The prosecution, you're welcome. <laughs> the prosecution focused its case on Elizabeth, and the trial took place all in one day. I guess that was normal then. It went on into the night, past midnight, by candlelight in this courthouse. John Adams is up there making his case. Like, he's trying to defend Elizabeth. Wow. He's trying to get her off. That's his job. And he says that, oh, if if she gave her arsenic the night before, uh, it would have killed her much sooner. And there were experts that testified to that. And he said, this guy, Jonathan, you can't trust anything he says. He's a huge liar. Um, I mean, it sounds like he is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Adams was pretty right about that. So the trial had four judges and a jury. Interesting. I don't know why they did things back then. Four judges. But what the judges do, so the lawyers do their thing, and then the judges all give their opinion. And Maybe we should have more than one judge now. I mean, so many things come down to the judge sometimes. Yeah, have a bunch of judges. Have a couple juries and just have them duke it out. (laughs) There we go. Three of the judges said the evidence supported a violent presumption that Elizabeth was guilty. The fourth said the evidence isn't so clear And then the jury deliberated all night and found both Elizabeth and Jonathan not guilty. Wow. John Adams won that one. He won. In my heart, I know they're both guilty. Oh, yeah. They're they're not good people. Clearly, they just killed her. Yeah. They were okay with her dying, at the least. It it sounds like. And they wanted to cover it up quickly, bury her, get her out of the way. They wouldn't touch her body. No. I mean, in, in Elizabeth's defense, good help is hard to find. (laughs) <laughs> how what happened to the baby um i couldn't tell mm-hmm. i don't know oh my gosh and we never terrible. got to find out what might have happened if either one of them had actually touched that corpse oh no 
purging fluid. Oh. Thanks in part to John Adams, uh, that was the last time beer right was ever attempted in the state of Massachusetts. But that wasn't the last time it was applied in America, apparently. What? I guess in my home state of Illinois, in 1869, a hundred years after all this stuff with John Adams, there was a murder case where the two victims' bodies were exhumed, and 200 of their neighbors were marched through and each forced to touch the bodies to see who the guilty person was. Ooh. Do they have a special name for that kind of parade? <sighs> Maybe that was that was actually, I was saving this, uh, that was the first Halloween. Oh, maybe it was the first Halloween, <laughs> the trick-or-treating. So. Yeah, instead of trick-or-treating, you would touch the body and you would either get a, a treat Ew. of blood or no. The treat would be purge fluid. The trick would be blood. Wow. I'm Shay. And I'm Jody. We host the Rainy Day Rabbit Holes podcast, a deep dive into the misty mysteries of the Pacific Northwest. From the untold stories of eccentric pioneers to the secrets buried deep in the moss-covered forests, we take you on a not-so-serious journey through the quirky tales and hidden stories of the region. On our show, you can hear great content like... Dr. Dewey's teachings propelled Linda Hazard into a lifetime career of starving people for money under the auspices of healing. I could do that. <laughs> Run a cold or both. <laughs> and thoughtful insights like Doll's son Charles is burned and poor Sparky is killed. <gasps> RSVP poor Sparky. No, not RSVP, RIP. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> From coffee pioneer Starbucks to feet on a beach and even Bigfoot, we have something for everyone. So grab your latte and hit play. Listen, learn, and laugh with Rainy Day Rabbit Holes. See you down the rabbit hole. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, now we're going to move into the realm of folklore. Ooh. And the history of one particular bugbear. Bugbear. So Thomas Jefferson knew that there were a lot of people who hated him. Mm-hmm. It was not a secret. Right. In one letter in 1818, when he was 75 years old, he wrote, There are fanatics, both in religion and politics, who without knowing me personally, have long been taught to consider me as a raw head and bloody bones. Oh, wow. That brings us to part three. Rawhead and Bloody Bones. So I found that letter one day when I was looking up something else, and I had to know more. Uh, it turns out that it was a fairly common reference for the founders. Dr. Benjamin Rush mentioned it in a letter to John Adams in a mm. kind of a similar way. Benjamin Rush, famous doctor, he knew he also had a scary reputation, probably because he liked to bleed and purge people who had yellow <laughs> fever. Oh my gosh. Uh, he wrote to Adams once in 1810, Some have said they felt fainty at the sight of my carriage. And others have left sick rooms as soon as I entered them to avoid my company. Oh, imagine why. I am now the physician of a family, the mistress of which has since confessed that she's often left company as soon as I came into it, only because my presence gave her pain. I was her raw head and bloody bones. Wow. He sounds like his own little horror story. Right? Yeah, there's a lot to get into with Benjamin Rush. Maybe for another day. Yeah, that'd be great. Then I found a letter that kind of shed a little more light on what this story meant to the founders. 
writing about the Constitution in a letter to John Adams, this other founder, Benjamin Lincoln, he said, The word aristocrat has been as commonly used to deter people from cordially embracing the new Constitution as the frightful story of raw head and bloody bones was formerly used to deter children from vice and with much greater success. Oh, wow. So that gives us an idea. This story is, it's a bugbear or a nursery bogey. Mm-hmm. And that's like a legend that was used to scare kids. Some nursery bogies lived in like murky waters and ponds in England, like Jenny Greenteeth. Ooh. Yeah, she would grab unattended children and drag them into the bogs where she would devour them. Ew. People use these stories as a way to scare kids from like dangerous waters or caves mm-hmm. or quarries or whatever. So it was good for safety. And it was also good for obedience. Mm-hmm. One 1836 reference called it the nurse's opiate to quiet a troublesome brat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. A troublesome brat? Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, if you're taking care of a kid and you want them to behave, you tell them raw head and bloody bones is going to get you. Wow. Troublesome brats. Yeah. Okay. That's right. such a term. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, it can be very accurate, yeah. <laughs> but it's quite harsh. One president who was no fan of nursery bogies was that skeptic, John Adams. During the closing argument of one of his trials, he was arguing about the lasting effects of psychological damage on children. And he said, there's a natural courage in children, which once abated and habits of fear fixed in their minds. They never can be cured. Instances are common. Fill a child's head with stories of ghosts, apparitions, and hobgoblins, and you fix such habits of fear upon them that all the force of their reason shall never be able to make them walk in the dark without fear. Who said that? John Adams. Wow. That was during a trial, his closing arguments. Wow, he's incredible. He's pretty cool. (laughs) And he and Abigail knew about those hobgoblins. Oh, they sure did. Personal experience. What's most interesting to me about this story is that it's considered kind of a lost tale of folklore. We have references to the monster or monsters going all the way back to the 1500s. And one of those even talks about how it was an old story then told by grandams or grandmothers. And we just don't have much of the original story left, just the title. Mm. So here's a few things that we know about Rawhead and Bloody Bones. Okay. So we think Rawhead and Bloody Bones is an English or maybe an Irish monster, kind of like Andrew Jackson, but not as scary. The earliest reference we have is from 1548 in a tract called Will of the Devil. Mm -hmm. So Satan is writing out his last will and testament. (sighs) And Rawhead and Bloody Bones is his demon secretary. Oh, God. Later in England, he kind of became a water demon. And he sometimes took the place of Jenny Greenteeth, haunting like wells and bogs. He crept into an English nursery rhyme. Rawhead and Bloody Bones steals naughty children from their homes, takes them to his dirty den, and they are never seen again. Oh, my goodness. Folklorist Ruth Tongue, in her book Somerset Folklore in 1965, she described the creature like this. This most unpleasant hobgoblin, as we were assured in my childhood, lived in a dark cupboard, usually under the stairs. If you were heroic enough to peep through a crack, you would get a glimpse of the dreadful crouching creature with blood running down his face, seated waiting on a pile of raw bones that had belonged to children who told lies or said bad words. If you peeped through the keyhole, he got you anyway. Wow. It just brings me to feel like 
the whole gravitation towards scary stories and the gravitation towards being scared isn't just a current society thing. It's a, you know, it's something that reaches back. And there's something to be said about that feeling of a good horror. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way that it travels in families. I mean, I was really mm-hmm. surprised. So many references throughout time were about grandmothers telling their grandkids these yeah. scary stories. Yeah. Back to the 1500s, it was like a grandmother's duty almost to, to scare, scare the, the shit out of their, <laughs> yeah. their grandkids. Because maybe back then, you know, grandmothers, they've had 10 kids themselves. Now they've got, I don't know, 100 grandchildren. They probably didn't have the energy, so they wanted to scare their kids from doing anything at all. <laughs> so so all they could do is, is just tell them scary stories. <laughs> it sounds like they just wanted their kids and grandkids to stay away from, like, sitting water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <didn't> <laughs> Maybe that was water. a big danger back then, you know? Like, we talk about strangers and sneaky people. They talked about sitting water. Well, think about all the houses with basements. And what's in a basement? There's tools. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. There's a basement in my story. Sorry, I'm getting really excited. You are getting excited. Um, Almost 100 years ago, the horror writer M.R. James mentioned Rawhead and Bloody Bones as a story that had been lost and said that all we're left with really is the name. And that's where I want to talk about your writing prompt. Oh, yes. Before this episode recorded, I gave Jess a writing prompt. I just gave her the title Rawhead and Bloody Bones, told her it was a monster, and asked her to write a story based on that monster. And then he leaves the room and says, write some folklore about it, like one or two paragraphs. And I think he underestimated me a little bit because you can't ask me to write a story and expect me to edit it (laughs) or stop at one or two paragraphs. So it's a little long, but... It got me emotional because I was, I, you know, since having children, I don't write very often and I used to love to write. And this was all very last minute in the moment writing. So it's not very polished, but I'm excited to share it. Do you want to share your version now? Yes. All right. Let's yes, hear. please. Okay. I mean, I don't know if I followed the assignment of folklore per se. This wasn't necessarily made to scare any children. And as I was writing it, I was realizing there was a lot of ways to dissect this story. <laughs> I may have been influenced by some foreign films as well <laughs> as my own horror stories. But All um, right. okay, raw head and bloody bones. Little boy Baron had a thick head of hair, locks like his father, chocolate brown curls. His parents were frequently unavailable, and Baron had no siblings to speak of, so he mainly played alone and grew to be painfully shy. By the time he was nine, he was sent to a fancy boarding school that had promised to get Baron talking with their progressive program. At first, the methods were humiliating but harmless. If Baron was asked to speak but defied, he would get a bucket of water poured on his head or forced to eat outside in winter. As months passed... (laughs) Are you disturbed? I'm disturbed. You freaked out? Okay, good. As months passed and Baron still wouldn't speak, the boarding school heads became more aggressive. Baron began spending nights in the boarding school basement as punishment for not complying. The basement was dark and infested, but Baron felt safest in the basement where he could relax without the school heads punishing him further. But then came the itching. Every night he was bitten by bedbugs, scabbies, and rodents. Infection took its course and Baron was frequently in a lot of pain. The itching was relentless. When the school heads saw him scratching, they shaved his head and his boisterous curls with an electric razor to reveal a bleeding scalp. Eek. Easter was around the corner, and the school threw their annual egg hunt with the town on their lawn. (laughs) What are you laughing about? Is this funny to you? Yeah, like I'm just imagining you writing like, 
raw bloody boils. <laughs> but now it's time for an egg hunt. <laughs> I wanted to give it some joy. I no, I love it. I love the I'm I'm just more scared than ever of what's going to happen at this egg hunt prom. Okay, well well, just so you know, this was all written in like 25 minutes. I, like last minute, I had no idea what Howard was going to, you know, I hadn't I, he said folklore, but I just wrote a story basically. Okay. The happy children raced to find eggs and stuffed their faces with chocolate. Baron remained on the steps, staring at the happy children, talking to each other and running. Baron scratched at his bald head, peeling of some skin from an old rodent bite. The heads announced that it was time to meet and talk with the Easter Bunny. Baron knew this meant he would be punished. He ran inside to his basement. A narrow bookcase stood against the basement wall, making a nice thick shadow behind it. Baron thought it was a perfect spot to avoid talking to the Easter Bunny. The heads came looking for him and even cracked the door to peek into his basement. Baron couldn't be found to participate with the Easter Bunny. When Baron was still missing the following day, his parents were called and a search party was sent throughout the grounds. The police searched the house, but Baron was never found and was assumed to be a runaway. Mm. Seven years later, a little boy. (laughs) Are you okay? You're going to be all right? Yeah, seven years. Yeah. We're seven years later now. This is a hell of an origin story. <laughs> seven years later, a little boy was sent to boarding school because they promised to get him talking with their progressive methods. Just like Baron, he found himself sleeping frequently in the basement where one night he made a discovery. He found a body. A little boy shoved behind a bookcase, his ankle caught on debris. Wounds on his body indicated he had scratched sores so badly that they went all the way down to the bone. The rodents had also feasted on the infected boils, leading to deep wound marks to the bone. His busy parents were saddened by the news, but donated to the speech program at the boarding school for doing everything they could for their mute son, Baron. The end. Wow. Cool and creepy. You like it? I do. I love that the story with just the title can be like a springboard to create anything. Yeah, definitely. I went all out for you. It's not really folklore. I don't know what this is warning kids about. Like, you better talk or (laughs) (laughs) don't shave someone else's head. I don't know what it's warning children of, but there's a lot of of deep issues in there for me. Yeah, I think we should try to work on those. Oh, yeah, right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to look at a few other versions of Rawhead and Bloody Bones as well throughout time. The story came to America sometime in the 16 or 1700s. And in the South, it became not one, but two creatures or two parts of the same creature. There's Rawhead, which is a defleshed, bloody skull. Who? And Bloody Bones, which is a dancing, headless skeleton. Wow. Yeah. That's inspiring. If I had known those things, I could have maybe written my story a little differently. You weren't supposed to know those things. Right. A lot of Southern folklore has African roots with enslaved people like bringing stories with them. But this is probably an example of the opposite, where whites told the story to slaves and then it took on a life of its own and became part of black folklore. Zora Neale Hurston, in her 1935 collection of African-American folklore, she wrote about Rawhead as an African tale. And she described him as a two-headed man that was more than a man. He was a conjure doctor. And he was a cousin of the devil. But not a double cousin. A double devil cousin, maybe. A <laughs> double devil cousin. He had a head with no hair, and he was always sweating blood. Ew. Isn't that great? Okay, that's great. <laughs> the story really seemed to take a, a life of its own in the South. And there are a lot of people today who remember their parents or grandparents scaring them with the threat of raw head and bloody bones. 
There's a collection of ghost stories from Alabama that describe him as having a raw head with those terrible bloodshot eyes and the blood oozing out of his bones. Disgusting. Uh, There's a version from Kentucky that is totally different. I mean, it reminds me almost of your version. It's about a girl who is sent out into the woods by her stepmother who hates her. Mm -hmm. And the stepmother says, oh, your sister's sick. I need you to go fetch some water from the end of the world. Oh, my God. And the girl somehow comes across a well that says end of the world. Well, and she puts her bucket in and she gets the bucket. The green teeth girl gets her. No, no. This raw head and bloody bones is is much less of a terrifying monster and more of like a a wily wish granting sprite. Hmm. So she has this bucket of water and inside of it, there's this creature called raw head and bloody bones. And apparently it's, it's, it's small enough to fit in a bucket of water. Oh, it sounds kind of cute. And it asks the girl to... It talks? It talks. And it says, wash me and dry me and lay me down easy. Oh, it's delicate. Apparently so. And she does this. Oh, wow. And she fills her bucket again. And there's I'm a- just picturing it looking like, I don't know, a little... What is that from... Stranger Things, Paragogon. Oh, Demogorgon? Demogorgon. I'm Maybe. picturing a little Demogorgon. Maybe, sure. So she puts her bucket in the water again, and there's another raw head and bloody bones. And he says the same thing. He says, wash me and dry me and lay me down easy. And she does it. So she does it three times total. Wow. She goes back with the water. And these three different raw head and bloody bones talk amongst themselves. And they decide, hey, that girl's cool. Let's. Um, <laughs> let's... Word, word says <laughs> that this girl's really cool. Word got around. Yeah. Um, to the Demogorgons. So they magically reward her with physical beauty, perfume, and gold and silver, which will come out of her hair when she combs it. They have those types of powers, huh? Apparently. But there's a dark side to their power, too. The girl gets home, magic hair, all this stuff. Her stepmother is like, whoa, what? And so she sends her daughter to go do the same thing. (laughs) To go get this magic. But her daughter is kind of a brat like her and isn't all about the... What did we say? The troublesome brat? She's a troublesome brat. She was a troublesome brat. And she is not down with washing, drying, and laying down easy. (laughs) So she refuses to groom these raw heads and bloody bones. Wow. So word gets around about her. Word does get around. They convene. They talk. And she's cursed with being smelly, ugly, and every time she combs her hair, vermin come out. Oh, that's just gross. Yeah. So that's kind of a story. I don't think anyone deserves that. Not even troublesome brats. (laughs) Um, So I guess in that version, the the moral is be nice to strangers. Be kind. Yeah, be kind. And lay lay them down easy. Lay them down really easy. Um, Then there's one more more version of folklore from the South that comes from Missouri. Uh, In this version, Rawhead starts out as an animal sidekick, a pig or a razorback. He belongs. What's a razorback. A razorback is a type of wild pig. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm know. not familiar with types of pigs. Mm-hmm. So this rawhead, this pig sidekick, he's with this witch named Old Betty, and he's a special pet. He can walk upright. Um, he likes to eat. I'm already disturbed. He walks upright. He sits in chairs. He goes through her garbage, which apparently has like magical ingredients, so he has some magic himself. But then a hunter steals him and slaughters him. Ooh. Old Betty uses black magic and the incantation raw head and bloody bones, raw head and bloody bones to bring him back to life. So this hog skeleton comes back to life. He gets some claws from a bear and he gets a raccoon tail to wear. And then he goes after the hunter who killed him. 
And then it's said that now when there's a full moon, you can see this this raw Shape head. of him? <laughs> you can see him riding a horse wearing the farmer's overalls. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. He gets dressed and... He wears the clothes of the farmer that killed yeah. him. Oh, that's disturbing. Yeah. Um, I so like my version the best. Your version is a little sweeter, um, <laughs> but still haunting. Yeah. There's no erect, you know, bloody pigs, that's for sure. Speaking of erections. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We're going to talk about the most famous version, probably, of Rawhead. Okay. And that's from a short story that became a movie called Rawhead Rex by Clive Barker. Hmm. In this story... Rawhead is an ancient being. He lived in the forests of England way before human civilization. And he was buried alive by humans centuries ago until a farmer accidentally digs him up. He comes to the town. He eats children. He burns villages. It's just, it's a nice, well-written, terribly gruesome story about a monster terrorizing a village. Jeez. He's nine feet tall. And he has a huge head, the color of the moon, Ooh. with black hair and a giant mouth that goes all the way across his head with two rows of sharp teeth. Wow. You're a bona fide monster. Yeah. He's basically a living embodiment of male lust and violence. Oh, that's interesting. And the creator... That they talked about male lust and violence then. Well, this was, this was written in the 80s. Oh, yeah. I missed that part. The creator kind of disowns the movie, even though he wrote the screenplay for it based on his short story. Why? Um, because of the creature design. Are you about to show me a picture of the Demogorgon? I'm about to show you a picture of Rawhead Rex from the movie. Oh, that's unnecessary. Okay. Well, it's clearly a suit. I don't even know how to describe this to our listeners. Yeah. They and can... I don't know if they they can look at it up themselves. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll put the picture in the show notes. The jaw is out of control, like some kind of wolf. But his body's like a man with a six pack and a bad tan. And his hair needs some some love. Yeah, Clive Barker's problem with the creature design is that it wasn't phallic enough. How are they gonna make it more phallic? That's well, why he doesn't want to own up to being a part of the project. <laughs> no, I think part of it is that I mean, clearly it did look like a suit. Maybe a pretty cool suit, yeah. but when it's moving around, it didn't have a whole lot of movement. No. It, it looked like a B-movie. But he, yeah, clearly. But he wanted it to look like a penis? Um, yes. That's very interesting. Brings yeah. me back to some, some old school feminist theory, <laughs> film theory. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so it's creepy. Rawhead and Bloody Bones runs the gamut from a bloody, skinless, child-eating demon to a small, wish-granting little sprite. Or a dead pig. <laughs> At the summer camp that I worked at in Illinois, shout out to Camp Shawanasi. Yes. Uh, there was a legend of Buckethead. Oh. And as a new counselor, I was expected to tell some version of this story to the 10-year-old boys in my cabin. Wow. But I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I just had the title. And I didn't know if the story had been told there for 50 years or if my friend made up the whole legend the year before. But I passed it on and making up a story based on nothing but the title. And I think that that's what Rawhead and Bloody Bones means to many generations. Interesting. So what was your story to the 10-year-olds? I believe it had something to do with a janitor who worked at the camp getting into an accident and getting his mop bucket stuck on his head. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> trying to get revenge on, on the children of the camp. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you were supposed to tell a story like this. Well, That's it, so interesting to me. Yeah. And comes back to, like, the grannies telling their grandkids. It's almost like you're supposed to, 
instill scary wisdom. Or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's all meant to make the counselors or the grannies seem, you know, more wise and knowing. Maybe. So really, raw head and bloody bones, it boils down to just a more evocative version of the boogeyman. And Jefferson used it to mean a, a childish fear that's put into your head by someone else. And when I think of modern presidents trying to scare people, that makes perfect sense. Wow. Nice job. Thank you. I want to close with one last spooky quote from John Adams. Cool. It's about the apathy of the American people and the consequences of not being involved. Mm. In 1813, he wrote, Every day increases my grief and astonishment for the glaring contrast between the spirit, activity, and energy of the people of New England from 1774 to 1783 and the torpor which deadens everything in 1813. This cannot last. The character of the people is not altered. It is the magic of politics which has produced this seeming lethargy. A black art indeed. A demon that must and will be exercised. Wow. That's deep. I feel like that's applicable today. Uh, election day is November 3rd. Uh, so go to vote.org. Make sure you're registered. Find out where you can vote so you can be a voter. And like some kind of vampire of democracy, turn your friends and family into voters too. Yeah, you have that power. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, write a review, tell your friends, follow us on Facebook, and consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Oh, I'm so excited about this because I did help with this area deciding what types of benefits you get as a Patreon. And yes. there's all different levels. Some and incredible behind-the-scenes goodies and more. Including possibly some episodes with our daughter. Um, who today, when we brought the idea to her, she said, no, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I she'll think, change her mind. Well, she's going to change her mind. Yeah, we're all having bloody bones. <laughs> her change her mind. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully she'll come around um, because that is definitely one of the benefits of becoming a Patreon. Yes. So we will be back next week with part two of our haunted president stories. Oh, and until then. So exciting. Thank you for plotting. Thank you very much. You're going to marry and, and breed with um, people you know.